In this podcast, Malcolm Heath, Practice Risk Manager at LawCover, and Ronwyn North, Managing Director, Street and Consulting Propriety Limited, explore the importance of having a risk management strategy for your firm, where to start, and examining the four essential questions that every law firm owner should be asking. They discuss where problems can and do arise and the advantages to the law firm in reviewing their risk strategies to help reduce practice risk generally and to reduce claims-prone risks from arising. Good morning, Roman. Thank you so much for joining today. Excellent, Malcolm. I'm pleased to be here. Um, having a chat about risk management, I'm always happy to do that. <laughs> All right. Let's jump straight into our discussions by asking you, how do you describe risk management? Oh, different ways. Um, I like to think about uh, risk management as doing something today to avoid being hurt tomorrow by something that may never happen. Um, I think that people do need a working definition of risk management in their heads so that, you know, when they're asked that question or they're explaining it to a new starter, they've they've got a, um, a way of explaining it. Um, I think it's also something to do with worrying productively. Um, There are so many risks in legal practice, it can be overwhelming. And uh, when I talk to lawyers, they're often, you know, worried about things, but they don't translate that worry into action. So another way of thinking about risk management is this idea of productive worry. If you're not going to do something about it, if you're not going to translate your anxiety into action, then liberate yourself from from the worry. You've just got to take your chances. Um, So so risk management's about uh, being willing to do something about whatever risk you think you're facing. Yes, good point. And as you only know too well, LawCover started its risk management education program in the mid-1990s, you having done a research report commissioned by LawCover a few years before then that looked specifically at risk management for the legal profession, following a significant increase in professional negligence claims against law practices and lawyers. Now, bringing that forward to 2020, what have you seen with risk management in the legal profession and how do you think the profession sees risk management today? Well, I, I think the profession as a whole is much more aware of the need to ask themselves questions about risk. I think in the past it was, well, you've got, you've got good practice and people didn't really know which good practices translated into good or bad outcomes for clients, whereas now because we have researched practice, we know that if you do this and you're rigorous about that, then you get better outcomes for clients. So I think they are more aware. Um, So for an individual practitioner, uh, I think the good, good practitioners know to ask themselves the question, what could go wrong here and what rules am I going to have for myself? What practice routines am I going to have for myself to make sure that I get this right for clients each and every time? 
once you've got people working for you or you've got a, a larger firm, then then the key is you've got to get consistency of approach across everybody. You've got to have a shared view of acceptable and unacceptable risk. You've got to make sure that what should happen does happen each and every time. So some firms now are really quite sophisticated in their approach um, to risk management and they do have risk frameworks and risk committees and risk partners and documented policies and procedures, but that's not not everybody. What do you see with the um, smaller firms? Because as you point out, the larger law firms have their risk committees, it's um, board agenda items, they've got their risk managers, it, it's um, a strong focus throughout the entire practice within from a framework policy through to the whole implementation. But the challenge for the smaller firm, the sole practitioner, how can they um, develop a practical, sensible risk management approach? Uh, I think first and foremost they have to be willing to as I said earlier, ask themselves the question. I I still see firms that think having a claim or a complaint, it's it's just a matter of good luck. Um, They don't see it as something that they can control. Uh, But what we know from analysing claims and complaints is that there are always missed opportunities to have prevented that claim or complaint. So... um, I think a lot of practitioners are just so busy on a on a treadmill that they don't even know to ask themselves the question. So that old saying, cobbler's children have no shoes, mm. plumbers have leaky taps, um, lawyers are so busy, um, you know, thinking they're managing client risks that they're not managing their own um, and then sometimes they're not even managing the client's risks well either. So... Uh, it's a my part of risk management is partly mindset, as I said. It's partly um, uh, looking ahead. It's being on the front foot. So if you're just so busy because you've got professional or personal pressures, then then you're just not having time to work on the business, as they say that expression. Yeah. When you're a small firm owner operator, you're working in the business and you don't take time to step back. And then, of course, you've got some people who are new to managing a a business on their own account and they just don't know how to set up a program. Yes, exactly. So from that, how, how do you go about it? How do you set up and maintain a good risk program? Look, a really simple model, I think, is uh, to ask yourself three or four questions uh, and those questions are, you know, what are our risks? What are our controls or safeguards? Are our controls working? And I think that's a step that a lot of people miss out. Um, uh, so we can talk some more about that um, shortly. And the fourth? And, well, when you've asked those three questions, you know, so what? Um it's that translation into, well, this is what I'm worried about, this is what I can, you know, would not like to happen, this bad thing. Um, So the fourth question is, well, what am I going to do about it? Um, I can't deal with everything at once. I've got to pick some things 
and do something about those things. And so I think the action planning, having a rolling risk management action plan where you've got a couple of things that you are going to be tackling at any one time is a really good way of just making sure that you're keeping moving in the right direction of reducing your exposure. Okay. And from those four questions, those four elements, um, can you take us through that first one and um, explain in a little bit more detail? Well, uh, what are risks? First question to decide is are you going to look at the practice as a whole and do the try and do the big exercise or do you want to take um, just business risk and try and focus on, okay, what are a couple of business risks that we're facing at the moment? Or I know law covers more interested in the what are our professional liability risks. Um, so that question of what are our risks can be broken down into three different types of risks. And I think, again, this is a really simple approach. Um three types of risk, opportunity risk, the risk of unexpected events um, and the risk of, of hazards, um, occupational hazards, the sort of things that um, you might expect to happen um, and you can do a lot to prevent them. And what about the um, perspective of the firms or the principal's uh, risk appetite? Uh, interesting question. I think part of exploring what are our risks um that comes up in at risk appetite comes up in relation to controls yeah. okay so we are, are we are we agreed that this is a risk and then when it comes to talking about well how are we going to respond to this risk are we going to just accept it and cross our fingers and hope it doesn't happen or are we actively going to try and uh reduce the likelihood of it happening so prevent the, the claim altogether or are we do we have the appetite for something in the middle so um, probably easier to illustrate with with financial risk I mean whenever you take on a new client or matter there's a risk that the client won't pay the bill mm-hmm. so within a firm some firms might have it, have an appetite to take the risk and only bill at the end um, some firms might want to mitigate that risk by having interim billing so they don't have a big financial exposure uh, to that client or matter at any one time. Other firms might not want to take the risk at all and they might insist on money up front. So that's a good example of where risk appetite will guide yeah. the firm policy and what they do to manage that sort of level of financial risk. Okay, yeah, very good, very good points on that. And the uh, whole appetite for risk is a fascinating one because you'll have some firms who are a little bit more entrepreneurial in their approach, and others will be more conservative. There's no necessary um, strict way to do it, provided there are good risk management processes along the way, and the firm has a good understanding of its exposures, its its risks. I, I think appetite for risk also uh, comes up if we're talking about um, opportunity risks. Um, every new client and matter is is an opportunity. And so you go through a risk-reward equation, you know, what are the pros and cons of taking on this matter? So it's a high-risk strategy just to take everything that walks through the door. Um, 
it's a lower risk strategy to become a, a specialist and um, have confidence that you are really confident in in what you do. So opportunity risk is both a strategic issue, if you like, um, what opportunities are firms going to pursue? And then it's a, um, a sort of an operational risk because taking on this particular matter or this particular client, um, what's our financial or liability exposure going to be? But um, so, so opportunity risk, the controls are this risk-reward equation. Um, if we've got a strategy, we're going to be providing these types of services or get out of one area of practice into a new area of practice. If you just take every matter that walks through the door, well, they're, they're lost opportunities to pursue your other goals. Yeah. So opportunity risk is about making choices. And when you wake, make one choice, you cut yourself out of another opportunity and sometimes um you know you make the make the wrong decision and you miss an opportunity yeah so that's one one you know type of risk but it, as i said earlier it's not the only type of no. type of risk and it's interesting too when you look at say the risk of of clients and um look and identifying those clients that may be a higher risk to the law practice it can be the uh difficult client and that can be described in many ways where it's the client that's difficult to reach um they're they're not responding in the appropriate timeframes. Um, there can be the client who's has the transferred matter from they've come from another law firm, and without that appropriate questioning, uh, the new solicitor may not realise that that uh, client has also come from a previous law firm and and one before that law firm. So these are some of the risks that are sometimes not identified until. Uh, further down the track in the matter when suddenly things go awry or a complaint and maybe a, a claim is made against the law firm. Mm-hmm. So, so that identification of client is quite critical just in a risk methodology. That, that's right. So so the screening and client intake um, is is a really important part. Start how you mean to finish. If you've got... Um, a, a good sense of the work that you will and won't do. You've got a good sense of what's a red flag and the sort of clients that would be difficult for you. Um, then, then you've minimised your risk right from the get-go. Um, so, so that firms that do weigh up um, the risk and reward of taking on new clients and matters, firms that have a clear idea about the work they will and won't do just those two things alone really do set a firm up to have minimised their exposure. And Roman, in the area of conflicts of interest, um, we often find that um, some solicitors struggle with the concept of understanding and identifying conflicts of interest. Um, what, what are your views on that and the obvious risks associated? Uh, well, that's again another example of, of opportunity risk because with conflict you have to make a choice about who you are going to represent and your appetite for um, an element of conflict. So even taking the most basic conflict of interest, acting for vendor and purchaser in a conveyancing matter, um, as a matter of policy, will you or won't you do that? Um, 
that's you're perfectly entitled to do that as long as you've disclosed to the client that you're acting for both parties but it's risky if the parties have any kind of a falling out then they can both one or both can round on the lawyer and say you didn't advise me properly you preferred the interests of the other party so so do you have an appetite for that risk or not uh if you do if you're willing to take them on um what are the controls that you have in place to make sure that you do it as properly as possible you know do it as safely as possible so rigorous disclosure what what we see in claims sometimes is that um they haven't properly disclosed to the client that they're acting for both parties or informed the client the implications of having the one lawyer for both um so how do you make sure that each and every time you act for both parties that you've made the proper disclosures got the proper consents and then you're monitoring that matter for uh any any emerging conflict so what what we know with conflicts of interest that um two things can happen you can make a poor judgment at the beginning about whether there's a conflict or not whether you should be acting for multiple parties at this in this particular matter a lot of lawyers get that wrong they think there's no potential conflict of interest when there is but more often it might have been reasonable to take the matter on at the beginning but as the matter progresses the interests of the parties diverge even you know if you've taken on a group of partners or even a you know husband and wife doing something mm. there there can be a divergence of interests that happens in the middle of the matter or the parties themselves fall out and lawyers hang in there too long and you know don't don't get get themselves off risk by sending parties away so there's a breakdown of um of of risk management I I guess you would say in that case. Yeah, that's a very interesting one and it comes to mind just brings up the um claim example of um where in this particular example the legal work there was nothing wrong at all with the legal work uh, there's no criticism and often the claims that we receive um are more to do with external factors rather than the quality of the legal work in this case um it was acting um on behalf of a business and the managing director had advised the law firm uh to instruct on the sale of some assets the the work was carried out and almost went through to the sale until a director of that company uh contacted the law firm uh to inquire as to why they were going down this path and um the assumption was that the managing director had the authority to act on behalf of the business and that was a um assumption that was almost fatal because there there wasn't the authority from the board for the managing director to be advising on this particular matter so that authority to act and the risk perspectives there um what what's the best way do you think for some law firms to go about reducing that type of exposure If if we go back a step that's an example of um what I was talking about the third type of risk you know hazards um occupational hazards um having a client give you instructions without authority is something that uh lawyers should recognize can happen um so to my mind that's a risk that lawyers should be thinking about and having a safe system of work about or a safe procedure about so 
um, in our framework of what are our risks, um, subset um, the things that we might expect to be traps in practice. Um, yep, clients uh, act, giving you instructions when they don't have authority um, to do so. So somebody is an agent on behalf of either a company or one person speaking on behalf of a group. Um, so that is just something that a lawyer who has the habit of risk management would be saying, I need to check each and every time that um, the person I'm dealing with has authority to instruct me. Um, and if I, how do I make myself remember that each and every time? Well, I need um, a, a prompt, um, part of my instruction sheet. <laughs> um, so, so you can have systems and controls around that. And certainly um, the disposal of assets by a company, um, you would expect to see, you know, a board resolution authorising the disposal of that asset. Um, so, so yeah, that should be flushed out. Mm. Can, come, can also be part of the habit of asking who is my client. Um, so, you know, again, you will have seen the trap there, an occupational hazard that you can misjudge who the actual client is or lose sight of who the client is or not clarify who the client is. So risk management 101, who is the client? Um, so it's, as I say, both a, a mental process, a mental habit and a, and a process. Yeah, very good points. And it'd be um, remiss not to talk about when we are looking at unexpected events, um, obviously the COVID crisis that we're currently going through. And there is a podcast that we're looking at risk management as a result of the COVID, but we really need to touch on that as well. Um, what's been your experiences with firms' responses under the COVID crisis? COVID's really interesting because crisis management and risk management are sort of two sides of the same coin, I guess. Um, COVID is an, is an unexpected event and different firms have had different levels of preparedness for an unexpected event. So the thing about unexpected events is you can't control whether they occur or not. You can't prevent them. But you can try and be prepared for the consequences of them. So for unexpected events, you're in the territory of contingency plans. Uh, if this happens, then how are we going to deal with it? And so whether it's the pandemic or whether it's a power outage, whether it's a business disruption for some other reason, firms need to have turned their minds to, well, what would we do if we can't get into the building or what will we do? How would we work remotely? So some firms um, that have business continuity plans or business disruption plans um, would have been in a better uh, position mm. than a firm that's never turned their mind to it. So anecdotally, you know, I know that some firms were able to switch with COVID to work from home really easily. Other firms just, you know, didn't have didn't have remote access systems. They didn't have enough laptops for their people, yeah. and they have really been playing, um, you know, catch up. Um, so so the 
So for the unexpected event, um, the control is a contingency plan. And then for our, you know, question about are our controls working, um, what's the robustness of your contingency plan? You know, have you actually had a a rehearsal or a drill to see that your work-from-home systems work? So, you know, if we flip from a you know, to a, from a professional liability context to uh, a business risk, you know, risk of fire. Um, you have fire drills. You've got to rehearse um, that people know what to do. So uh, the risk management part is thinking ahead. What would we do if this thing happens? Have we got a plan in place? Have we tested the robustness of our plan? Once the bad thing happens you're activating your plan, you're in crisis mode, you're dealing with the particular problem. And then when you get through the crisis, um, you need to, you know, resume and recover normal operations. So where firms are at at the moment with COVID, we see um, a huge variation as well as to people's return to the office plans or um, sort of a risk assessment. We don't want to expose clients or staff to the risk of infection. So what are all the ways we've got to change what we're doing in the office? Um, If we're going to let people work from home, do we need to do a risk assessment of whether it's actually, you know, safe and acceptable for them to work at home? So so your crisis management then has other risk, risk management elements to it as you're trying to deal with the the issues. Yeah, great points. And one of the things I, I find exciting about doing that type of analysis and um, risk checking is that we often go back to the grassroots to question why is it we do what we do and is it the most effective way? And I think with a disaster confronting us like COVID, we are then challenged to examine every part of the work process as to does this make sense doing it this way? Um, and I think that's quite an exciting challenge. It's very difficult to be thrown that unexpectedly, but to look at it in a positive way where we can look at more effective processes and procedures and new ways to do things, um, you know, without a doubt, technology and now I think all of our knowledge in technology has increased quite significantly these last few months. Um, we're seeing huge changes within the court system. Um, you know, gentleman Richard Susskind has talked for and written about online courts and um, and moving in that direction for some time now. And here we are now under that process. The pressure that puts on litigators, of course, um, adds an extremely high uh, level of change and uh, adjustment. And there are obvious problems uh, starting off going with online court matters. But it's that whole focus of can we develop this at a more sophisticated way and can we look at improvements from this? And And I think... A risk for a law firm is a failure to adapt risk. So I think as a result of COVID, there are a couple of questions that law firms should be asking themselves. One is, has our professional liability exposure changed in any way because of these new ways of working or the pressure people are under what could fall through the through the cracks? And then there's um, this other risk that if people are expecting snap back to normal, they're going to be disappointed because things are going to change. So the the risk in, in failure to adapt to the new 
way of doing things is an, is another type of risk as well. Yeah. What about complacency as a risk in itself? Is is that a risk? Oh, I think that's one of the one of the biggest risks of risk management because when you think about it, you prepare. If we go back to what I said right at the beginning, that risk management is doing something today to avoid being hurt tomorrow by something that may never happen. When the bad thing doesn't happen, you're all geared up and you're prepared for it. Um, when the danger doesn't present itself, it's human nature to drop your guard. And so we're already seeing this to take a COVID example where, um, you know, the hand hygiene um, was all the go, but now that the bad thing hasn't happened to people, they've got slack with hand hygiene. Mm. I do some work in health. So even pre-COVID times, at the at the normal times, um, it's very hard to get um, doctors and nurses to comply with hand hygiene protocols. I think you, you know, it's, if you're eighty five percent, that's a good result. When you know it's appalling to think there isn't a hundred percent compliance with hand hygiene in normal times. So human beings have trouble doing the same thing over and over again because um, it's a preparation for a danger that doesn't manifest itself. So risk management's always a mental game of, of believing that this safeguard's important and doing it each and every time. And we're just lucky, really, that um, when we drop our guard, it doesn't always end in disaster. So, but one time, one time it will. So I I think my, up there with my my biggest risks in the big picture of biggest risks are complacency, failure to adapt. um, And another one might be looking in the wrong direction of of not, um, you know, for some people, a pandemic wasn't on their radar at all. Um, And, you know, for some people, cyber risk might not be on their radar at all. They haven't been looking at in the right direction to see where the risks have been coming from. Yeah, so, very good point. Um, and that cyber risk, you know, we've seen it with um, some claims that have occurred through uh, cyber incidences on the classic example of where controls were thought to be in place, such as the systems backups and the belief that um, the, uh, the software was backing up but um, it was found that when there was a cyber incident, and this was with a ransomware attack, that um, this law firm of four partners realised that their backups had been corrupted for the past three years. So whilst there were, in theory, backups occurring, and they were occurring, um, the problem was that they weren't testing and uh, testing regularly. And it was a nightmare for them to then find out that um, they were faced with then looking at having to pay a ransom to criminals um, to try and, and hope that their service could be unlocked. Uh, huge risk mm. when they had thought that they'd had mm. the best controls in place. However, that testing wasn't occurring. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other examples of, um, you know, firms not asking themselves that question, are our controls uh, working? Um, firms that you know, have a policy that there shall be an engagement letter for every matter or that there'll be cost disclosure for every matter and there is no checking that what should happen does happen. Uh, So I'm still surprised by firms that don't do 
uh, any file reviews or don't have a, uh, a checks and balances to make sure that cost disclosure is, is done. Um, or firms that might do file reviews, but they do it when the matter's finished. Um, I've always been a bit curious about that um, because what's the use of finding a problem when the file's mm. finished? You can't go back and fix it. So it's much better off to have um, mechanisms of monitoring and review in, in real time so that, you know, you can intervene and get the matter back on, you know, back on track. Um, incident debriefing, another example of um, are our controls working is being willing to examine instances of client dissatisfaction and, and say, well, how did that occur and what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Um, and firms are, you know, quite different in their approaches to uh, incidents. Um, do they encourage people to speak up? Um, do they, you know, or is there a mm. culture of blame if something happens? So um, you, attitudes to risk management and learning from um, bad things that happen is another dimension to this. Um, and it's, you know, if you're a sole practitioner, it's reflection time. Well, how am I doing? You know, if I was to stand back and look at, um, you know, evaluate myself as a, as a third party was doing it, um, what what would they say? Is my risk management, you know, good enough? Yeah. Well, okay, so assuming a practice has looked at its risks and its controls and the results, then then what's next? Well, it's it's that so what question. Um, do we need to do anything differently? Is there uh, a weak spot? Um, does my analysis show that, well, you know, on balance I'm doing okay? Um, or is there something I can improve on? Is there a, a new risk that, highlights a gap in my con my controls um, uh, is there something I can tighten up on I've been doing verification of client identity identity only when I um, the law says I have to do it but really I should be doing it for other types of matters as well so can I can I tighten up in that area or well I've got a bit I've let my guard down and I'm not keeping records like I should. I'm doing a lot of mobile phone calls, but um, my record keeping in relation to mobile phone calls is a bit slack. So uh, I need to tighten that up. So it's it's finding a couple of actions that you can take. And what I say in the risk management workshops is a test of that is um, if someone's got a risk management action plan, um, could we have a conversation in 12 months' time about the things that they have been able to tick off on their action plan that they have done to reduce their exposure to, you know, whatever risks they identified? So it doesn't have to be a, a long list. A short list is better because you're more likely to um, tick things off a short list, but there's research that says that the most successful managers um have an agenda, a few things that they are working on at any one time and they just get them done. And there'll always be something to take 
you know, come onto the list. If you mm. knock off a couple of things, there are so many risks in practice, there'll be something else that you can, um, you know, tighten up on or the world will change and there'll be something new that you've, you've got to address. Yeah, so it's really more, would you say, like a rolling list? Yeah, and, and I think, and you know, getting started, you just pick something and you start. I mean, it, you don't have to go through the what are our risks, what are our controls, are our controls working, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a tortured process. It's, I think the important thing is to start to get the risk management habit to um, say, okay, um, I've just got to think about how I think about risk and do something. And once you've started, then you do the next thing. And before you know it, um, you're, you're into the habit and uh, you start to see things that you perhaps didn't see before. Yeah, and for a final question to you, um, what is it about the attitude or the behaviour or the mindset? What, what do you think? Is that a critical part of risk management? I think so. It comes back to what we were talking about earlier about working on the business and working in in the business. Um, you know, part of me wants to say that risk management should be, you know, so integrated into everything you do that it's just good practice. But I, I think whether you're an individual or a firm, you do need to take this step back and see management as real work, risk management as real work and something that you need to carve out time um, to reflect on. I think it's about seeing risk management as an investment in the sustainability of the practice, not a cost. Um, you know, a lot of people who work with lawyers see this mindset shift that management's a cost rather than an investment. Um, and it is a slightly different way of, of thinking about thinking about the, the world. Um, I think it's also some people are a bit sceptical that risk management works, um, but, you know, Law Cover's done studies, other places have done studies to say that, look, firms that take risk management more seriously do have better client outcomes, they do have lower rates of claims and complaints, and as a result they, you know, have happier clients, lower insurance premiums and, um, you, you know, they are more in control of their own destiny than firms that just say it's all too hard. Roman, thank you very much for your time today. You have fabulous points and to draw upon your, your knowledge um, spanning a very long time now in the area of risk management. Um, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Malcolm. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.